0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of South Asian Studies. We are a channel with the New Books Network. And today we are talking to Michael Levian about his first book, Dispossession Without Development, Land Grabs in Neoliberal India. So this book just came out with Oxford University Press this year. And Mike is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us here at South Asian Studies. Thanks for having me, Madhuri. Well, let's uh, start uh, right back to how you became a sociologist and more specifically, what brought you to the politics of dispossession.
1: It's uh, a good question, because there's not actually that many sociologists uh, study dispossession. <laughs> um, but I uh, was interested in, I, I, my interest in dispossession really started uh, before graduate school, um, when I was volunteering with the anti-dam movement in the Narmada Valley in central India, um, which probably many people know about. It's one of the most famous anti-dam movements um, in the world, uh, that unfortunately, despite You know, it's really energetic and um, committed organizing over, you know, two and a half decades. I was not able to stop this big dam from being built uh, and flooding out hundreds of villages. Um, In 2004, um, I unfortunately witnessed a a number of homes flooded out when the Indian government raised the dam height another 10 meters. Um, After that experience uh, and coming back to the US, I decided that I would pursue a PhD in sociology largely to look at these um, kinds of issues um, and then as I returned to India over the sub uh, in subsequent years um, a new generation of land struggles started to emerge um, in a, increasingly in the plains rather than remote river valleys uh, against things like seZs real estate projects um, various kinds of private investment um, so there seemed to be uh, some shift in the political economy of land dispossession uh, that had occurred. And I wanted to try to understand what that shift was. And that's kind of the inspiration for the book. Uh, what had changed from the era of large dam building to the era of you know, land dispossession for special economic zones and um, various other kinds of privatized and increasingly speculative um, economic investments.
0: And ethnographically speaking, the book follows a case study, a longitudinal case study of a village you call Rajpura in the Western Indian state of Rajasthan. And unlike a lot of anti-dispossession struggles, which were increasingly successful in that uh, decade, right? So post between 2005 and 10, I would say, um, this SEZ actually got built, right? So what motivated your choice of a case of dispossession that actually played out?
1: Right. I mean, at the time, a lot of attention um, was focused on these very... um, you know, contentious sites of so-called land wars uh, in India, places like Nandigram and uh, Niamgiri and um, Singur and and so on. Um, And I wanted to study what actually happens when people get dispossessed for these new projects, because there's a lot of debates happening about, you know, Uh, say, especially economic zones. These are uh, necessary for India's development. They will attract foreign investment and create jobs and infrastructure and so on. That was the argument of the Indian government and sympathetic kind of modernizers. Um, And then on the other side, there was this kind of argument that these are predatory real estate grabs and so on. Um, And there was a little evidence to kind of um, intervene in those debates. And so I wanted to um, go not where there was a kind of ongoing land struggle where you would just go and talk to people who are fighting um, these projects as, as useful as that was, I want to do something a little different and um, and go uh, where a project had either kind of not faced resistance or overcome resistance and actually get built. So you can say, well, what is the, you know, political economy driving these projects? What are their consequences uh, for people when they're dispossessed um, And so I found this project in Rajasthan uh, a little bit by chance. I was studying Hindi in Jaipur, and I um, found out that this large special economic zone, the Mahindra World City, had been built uh, 25 kilometers outside of the city. Uh, And it was really the first of the new uh, generation of SEZs of that scale to to get built um, in North India. Um, And so I gradually... um, started interviewing people about it and, um, through, uh, you know, some efforts, some serious efforts, um, that I describe in the preface to the book, um, eventually made some contacts in the village and then moved there to, to, to start, uh, the village study.
0: And I'm assuming all our listeners know what a SEZ or a special economic zone is, but just in case, Folks aren't familiar with this term, I think, specific to the subcontinent. Will you just uh, give a brief explanation?
1: Uh, I mean, there, there's a, a kind of a genealogical relationship to, you know, EPZs, which were, you know, a much earlier, um, uh, f- you know, f- form uh, through which mostly, you know, Western multinationals, you um, wanted to invest in you know, poor countries and exploit labor um, with very little you know, labor protection or regulation or taxes. Um, and so these things started to um, get uh, promoted in the 50s and, and, and 60s. Um, and, but the most proximate model for India's SEZs were China's. Um, so China, you know, Shenzhen, um, and so on, these massive now urban agglomerations started as um, SEZs. Um, and they were largely, in China, though, built by the government. Um, they were much bigger than India's. Now, when India, uh, about 10 years into liberalization, decided it wanted to do something similar, had not been able to jumpstart manufacturing the same way as China, um, and so it passed a special economic zone policy in 2000 and then an act in 2005, and the basic idea was to create these highly liberalized um, zones in which you know companies would... Um, not have to pay taxes or tariffs um, and, uh, you know, labor um, regulations would be not abolished, but delegated to a kind of business friendly administrator. Um, But the key difference in India was that, um, uh, and this was largely, I found through my research at the lobbying of the real estate sector, um, uh, India proposed building, uh, allowing private companies to build the zones themselves. So what would happen is the government would uh, acquire land using the eminent domain. Um, uh, that, I mean, that's that's the, the euphemistic term used in India's land acquisition. Um, it's really course of dispossession of the state. You know, says to farmers, uh, you have to give your land up for these projects. Uh, we'll give you some compensation and so on. Um, and uh, and then what happens is that a private company gets this huge amount of land. And uh, can sell half of it for export-oriented uh, to export-oriented companies, um, and then save about half the land to build upscale residential um, and commercial real estate. And that was the real economic incentive um, behind uh, for the private developers of the zones was that they'd get their hands on these huge chunks of land um, and uh, could, you know, um, turn it over. Um, in a very hot real estate market uh, in India in the mid-2000s. And so it was that economic logic which explained why, you know, within a few years there was almost 600 uh, proposed SEZs. So there'd be these little private enclaves um, scattered throughout the country that would be hyper-liberalized and so on. Um, But there's two things that were surprising about how this played out for the Indian government. Um, The first was... um, You know, although they were intended to promote manufacturing, they mostly got colonized by the already kind of thriving IT and IT services um, industry. And the second was that they unleashed these kind of widespread land wars um, uh, across the country, uh, which made them extremely contentious.
0: Okay, so you arrive in Rajpura and the Mahindra World City SEZ is already up and running. And Rajpura is a large 400 plus households village, extremely heterogeneous, multicast. How did you go about approaching the field? What were some of your methodological approaches, concerns, because that's a large, large field site.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's daunting. Um, it's not one of these small villages. Um, and um, so it would be hard to kind of know in its entirety. Um, but obviously, you can't just kind of show up and say, hi, I'm here to study um, the SEZ. Um, and so it took me a while to form some kind of contact. Um, and it was, in many ways, a compromised kind of contact in the sense that, um, uh, you know, the the person I was finally able to meet, who was a distant relative of a you know a graduate student at Rajasthan University, who I met um, serendipitously. Um, he was originally from that village, was a you know real estate investor and broker, uh, and he um, agreed to take me there. Um, it took me a while to realize that since I entered into the village through the networks of these agrarian elites who had kind of diversified to the city and had become land brokers um, as this SEZ unleashed a real estate boom in surrounding villages and land prices multiplied by a factor of like 20 and 30. Um, These were the kind of, um, you know, dominant caste agrarian elites who became, these land brokers and turned out to be very contentious, um, uh, people because they often, uh, other farmers felt they really cheated them in selling their land cheaply. They knew that something more valuable was happening and so on. Uh, but so anyway, it was one of these people that I, that provided my entree into the village. And so, um, I went, you know, on two or three trips with these guys and, um, course they only introduced me to mostly um, other dominant caste elites and it was through one of them that i was able to first secure housing in the village Uh, and this is actually the neighboring village to rajpro and i wound up in the home of a uh, pretty wealthy uh, brahmin uh who was had been head of the village and so on um and I accepted this largely side unseen because I was I needed some kind of foothold. Um, now, after about a month and a half of what actually turned out to be really good data because I was able to understand, you know, how uh, the relatively wealthy upper caste were kind of faring um, post-SEZ and, you know, a lot of them were actually doing quite well. They were, uh, the village had all been given these compensation plots and while a lot of uh, Poor villagers um, and lower caste villagers had sold these quickly and wound up without much compensation, largely uh, to a large extent because of these brokers who kind of convinced them to do it. Um, a lot of these upper caste landed farmers were uh, making lots and lots of money um, brokering real estate, selling out part of selling off part of their land. Some of them even got contracts to work on the um, boundary wall you know, and other kinds of support infrastructure around the SEC. Some of them were selling water pumped out of the, uh, you know, diminishing, uh, groundwater to the company and so on. Uh, so I got to see inside that, you know, uh, how this was this process was playing out among the agrarian elite for a month and a half. Um, of course I didn't find this sociologically, um, satisfying. It was unrepresentative. And so I eventually, um, you know, just walking through a village and making contacts and uh, acquaintances. And one was a village school teacher who put me in touch with um, the parents of his pupils who were Dalits, much poorer, um, in the main village of Rajpura. And they had an extra room in the house they built with their compensation money. Uh, and that became, um, so I rented a room from them and that became my home for, for most of my uh, fieldwork. Uh, and there I got to see a very different um, side of the story. What had happened to the, uh, the Dalit, you know, I call semi-proletariat, you who know, had a little bit of land, um, not much, were still dependent on wage labor, um, but the land had been pretty important to their livelihoods and are now kind of coping with life without it, um, not eating well, not having access to milk products, uh, the compensation running out and not finding work inside the SEZ. And so, I followed those families um, uh, and how they were kind of struggling to not fall into the kind of you know utter precarity of the the fully proletarian condition, um, being an unskilled laborer in rural India and going from one you know construction site to, uh, to another.
0: I think at one point, you observe the foods that you were eating in your second host family, the dalits, compared to the Rich ghee slathered rotis and tall tumblers of buttermilk and thought that was a particularly um, acute observation of the kinds of everyday privations that um, that yeah
1: it was really stark yeah and livestock is very very important to these villages and and um, the, the the lower caste small holders really had to liquidate almost all of theirs, um, if not all of theirs. Uh, and so the absence of milk in the diet was really, um, uh, was really, you know, acutely felt, um, even if it, this was the kind of paradox was, you know, if, um, families had concrete houses now, that was the main thing that, you know, most of the even relatively poor households got out of the process, um, and so the government would classify them as above poverty line now, um, but they didn't have steady income and their diets had deteriorated because the the, the precarious and low-paying jobs they are able to get didn't compensate for the loss of you know, agricultural land and livestock.
0: You also conducted a survey in three villages, but you also went into corporate offices of Mahindrawal City, but then also Jaipur and Gurgaon. And so you effectively studied up as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, about doing both in a sense?
1: Sure. Um, And that's what I started with. And even before I was able to make a contact in the village. And it turned out to be fairly easy um, to get those interviews. Um, And I think, you know, I think certainly there was some privilege of being a foreigner um, uh, uh, and being American um, that gave me access to some of those elites fairly easily. And also, in part, because they they didn't, um, they assumed I was pretty politically naive about about the issue. and uh were quite frank with me about the you know the profit model in the SEZ, um, what needed you know, government officials about what it needed to be done to um you know attract investors, which was, you know, acquire land and give it to you know uh private companies quite cheaply and so on. Um so I did get some pretty good data on that. Now as my you know, for the in terms of the the SEZ developers, um, the companies inside the Mahindra world city, um, my access did dry up as my field work progressed. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I suspect it was because I, uh, you know, I was, they, they, they saw I was studying, uh, I was in the village, right. So at the inauguration of self-help group, um, you know, uh, um, corporate social responsibility projects. Um, they would see me in the audience with the security guards and, and things like that. And I think they eventually suspected that it might be a, um, at least a study that might be told more from the vantage point of dispossessed villagers. Um, but at any rate, at some point, my, my access did um, dry up with them. And so, you know, if, if you're dealing with the same site, it is hard to you know, keep both, both of those sides, going. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I also, of course, wanted to situate my, you know, this SEZ, um, my case within the larger case, you know, uh, universe of SEZs and um, what difference, you know, to what extent different States were um, doing things differently in terms of dispossessing farmers. So I wound up doing interviews in, in seven States um, and in Delhi and um, which kind of is the information that you know is is chapter two, um, and chapter um, nine, um, the, the um, really build on those kinds of um, more all India type observations.
0: Um, so yeah, I you know like to perhaps go back more in depth uh, to the book and you know very early on you point out that land dispossession has been ubiquitous since the 15th century right across the world and more specifically it has been integral to the rise and consolidation of capitalism but this interest in you know quote unquote the land wars or land grabbing is relatively new both in the popular media as well as you know within academia so how can we you know account for perhaps this um disjuncture or or rather how would you contextualize your research against this trend this efflorescence of interest in land grabbing now, even though it's something that, you know, has accompanied human histories for a very long time.
1: Right. It's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, land dispossession of course is a very old phenomenon. Uh, even if we're just you know talking about already consolidated States dispossessing their own populations, um, you know, there's work that shows even before eminent domain was established in Europe, you had, you know, knights taking land for castles and so on. And, um, and of course, a lot of the debates, uh, the scholarly debates around dispossession were about the original transition to capitalism in England, um, uh, you know, what Marx called primitive accumulation. So there's a large literature um around primitive accumulation, which is basically about the transition from a pre-capitalist to capitalist society. Um, And of course, the question that Marx doesn't really address is what does this mean outside of England? (laughs) Um, And, you know, Marx actually never really paid much attention to the economic forces driving dispossession. He was more interested in, you know, um, how dispossessed peasants, you know, furnish the supply of landless proletarians. That was a necessary precondition for capitalism. So Marx left this kind of, you know, post hoc, a bit functionalist account of the transition to capitalism in England. Um, But how do we think about the relationship, the ongoing relationship between land dispossession uh, and capitalism? Um, There was less to go on there. And that was, you know, one thing I think Luxembourg tried to get at, uh, Karl Polanyi tried to get at, and then David Harvey really kind of updated with his theory of accumulation by dispossession. Um, which I kind of critically engage um, in the book. I and mean, I think the real usefulness of that concept was to make clear that land dispossession is something that, you know, is ongoing uh, <clears throat> under capitalism. Um, it's not a kind of just a, you know, a transitional phase or something like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, Harvey has a high level of abstraction. He groups together land dispossession with lots of other things that frankly don't seem related. Um, And, you know, the interesting question, I mean, underplays the role of the state, which, you know, is almost always deeply involved in land and land dispossession specifically. Um, And then, of course, the question is, you know, how does land dispossession vary over time, over phases of capitalism and so on? And across countries today, you see very different um, drivers of dispossession if you look at, um, you know, India and compare it to, um, say some countries in Southern Africa or Latin America, um, they have different, different sectoral compositions of growth, the character of the political economy, even as they all adopt kind of neoliberal policies still looks a bit different. They, you know, um, so this is kind of what led me to advance idea of regimes of dispossession as a kind of lens for thinking about, um, you know, the way in which land dispossession, um, uh, as something that's typically orchestrated by the state varies over time uh, and over uh, place, and gives us, um, you know, a li- bit more to go on to start really thinking comparatively about land dispossession, because you can't really periodize it globally. Uh, it's very clear that you know this is not about you know when the state grabs land for um, you know a free trade zone, so you know um, private real estate capital can arbitrage. Uh, on the value of dispossessed land for farmers. I mean, this has nothing to do with a transition to capitalism, right? This is about, um, you know, uh, enabling private speculation and a kind of global economy and so on. Um, so this is why I think that you know, the notion of primitive accumulation as applied to contemporary land grabs is pretty misplaced. Um, now then, the, you know, there's been this recent boom of uh, empirical work on land dispossession um in india and also you know globally a lot of it was centered around the farmland rush so transnational investors um picking up huge amounts of land um across um, particularly africa latin america southeast asia um and the way that was a response to you know um uh, financial crisis to you know food price inflation and changes in global food economy and so on so that's gotten a lot of attention um But then, you know, there's this larger also history of scholarship, um, which is particularly rich in India on, um, you know, land dispossession. It was often called development-induced displacement, you know, for dams and other kinds of um, projects. Um, So it's exciting new work being done. And the one thing I would say uh, about it is that the work could be more in dialogue um, with each other and kind of understand, you know, why does land dispossession look different in India or China or different parts of india and and so on and you know what how does that impact the you know the emergence of anti-dispossession movements what their specific politics is um and their goals and why they're successful or not um it's kind of a wide open area of research for i think young scholars and so i was hoping with this book to kind of um contribute to that research program
0: I mean, yeah, you know, the very title of your book, I think, encapsulates the argument that you keep coming back to over and over again, which is that dispossession, you know, by itself doesn't guarantee any development, be it the modernist hubris, which says that, you know, dispossession is inevitable. And... The Marxist position, which you know envisages the dispossessed to automatically transform into um revolutionary army of proletarians and so you know do you want to talk a little bit about how you problematize the very notion of development itself as contained within these two regimes and then how you set up you know that that confrontation between The regime of dispossession on one hand and what you call the mandatory attention that we need to pay to the specificities, right, of the agrarian milieu that we are analyzing. Because it's both have to be present in equal kind of nuance and depth.
1: Right. Yes. I mean, because this was really the the main target of the book um, was to critique um, uh, kind of modernizing assumptions uh, about this possession, right? Which are uh, extremely longstanding and deeply ingrained, um, you know, certainly in in my discipline of sociology, I think in many disciplines um, and, uh, you know, is shared not just by, um, you know, kind of modernization theorists, but certain variants, I would say, historically of, of Marxism, whether or not it's an accurate reading of Marx is you know, an interesting and complex debate. But certainly many Marxists have also assumed that the disappearance of the peasantry was kind of a necessary and inevitable stage uh, in the transition of capitalism and therefore socialism, uh, whereas kind of your straightforward modernization theorists um, just see that you know, moving peasants out of agriculture and so on is necessary uh, for economic growth. And you know, in the context of current debates in India, that position is extremely prevalent. Um, it's in, you know, the newspapers, it's being made by, you know, politicians, by economists, um, uh, and, and government officials. Uh, and what I wanted to do is really push back against that argument. Um, and I want to say, look, land dispossession, first and foremost, is just redistribution. You're taking land from one group of people and giving it to another. Um, now, under capitalism, it's typically an upward redistribution, uh, and so of course, you know, one <clears throat> question is: so, do they really? Is it really an argument that, you know, the so-called less, you know, productive people should always relinquish their, uh, you know, means of production to those who can put them to higher and best use? I mean, if so, that's an argument, a normative argument, not an analytical one, for the kind of upward redistribution um, of wealth. Um, but then it also struck me as a huge empirical problem here, right? I mean. Uh, which is, you know, when you dispossess land for different purposes, different contexts, can going to have different, you know, uh, outcomes. And instead of just subsuming that into this kind of late-in-term development, let's try to understand the different trajectories of capitalism that are being facilitated by dispossession in different times and places and what that means, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, uh, what kind of economic growth is generated, but also the distribution uh, of that growth. Um, and so what I wanted to argue is that not that, um, you know, under India's post-independence developmentalist period, the so-called developmentalist period, that land was not necessarily, you know, dispossession was not serving development in some kind of normative sense. Um, it was deeply impoverishing, um, you know, I started by discussing the Narmada Valley. I mean, what happened to the people dispossessed for large dams in India was her- horrific. They got terrible compensation. They were almost always impoverished and very rarely shared in the kind of benefits of uh, whatever project was being, um, uh, you know, put on their land. Um, it was just a different phase of capitalism, It was one in which the state, you know, prioritized industry over speculation. It's one where the public sector typically managed uh, the projects um, that were built on dispossessed land. There were certain kinds of not always effective, um, you know, commitments to labor intensity and balanced regional development. Um, And, you know, it was still no golden age of dispossession, um, but it was different right and with the transition to neoliberalism in india um since the 1990s um what i try to track in the in the second chapter of the book on the genesis of the land broker state is how state governments now become um basically land agents for private real estate capital so you know dispossessing land for anything that represents growth right becomes um uh you know they're, they're willing to do that for anything it um, doesn't matter if it's going to create jobs. It doesn't matter if it'll provide, you know, if the infrastructure will be in a private enclave that only, you know, corporations and uh, wealthy people can enjoy. Uh, as long as it's a higher value land use than agriculture, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a public purpose in its development. Uh, and so what I try to show in the book is really how exclusionary this particular phase of um capitalism is and, and what the results are when you dispossess, you know, farmers for it and to just really problematize, um, this narrative. Um, and you know, what I want to say is that the, whether dispossession is ever developmental, um, the, the beneficiaries of this type of growth driving contemporary land grabs, uh, in India, um, it's increasingly speculative, it's increasingly non-labor intensive, and it's increasingly enclaved, um, and all these things come together to um, create an outcome like what I observed in Rajpur, where there's very little, um, you know, benefits uh, to these villages, except for <laughs> dramatic real estate speculation. And you know, the the problem with real estate speculation as a as a driver of broad based growth is that the land is distributed very unequally pretty much everywhere due to the kind of failures of land reform, uh, in the post-independence period. And, um, uh, and not to mention, uh, almost entirely, you know, controlled by men. Um, and so what I think the, the, the most detailed ethnographic chapter of this book is really trying to show how real estate speculation interacts with these pre-existing agrarian inequalities of class and caste and gender to produce this, um, you know, uh, magnification of really old inequalities, um, making some farmers, the agrarian elite, very rich, some fraction of them, but uh, impoverishing a larger number of them. Um, And so, you know, basically the, the argument of dispossession without development is kind of this. I mean, this is the, Political economy of, of contemporary capitalism in India is, is one that's very exclusionary, that has few uh, benefits to farmers, and that this is, I think, one of the reasons why it's so explosive. Uh, is that even in um, even small you know small quantities of rain fed land can seem highly valuable uh, in a context of growth that is not absorbing the labor of dispossessed peasants uh, and that has very little to offer them. And I think that's, you know, a key structural underpinning of the widespread land wars that you see in India today. And it's why you see, you know, the Indian government in response is not offering jobs. It's not offering, you know, some inclusion. It's basically trying to offer them a share of the real estate rents that these projects generate. Um, And it's not actually willing to even offer that much. Um, The the ostensibly pro-farmer policy that was implemented by the last Congress government was, you know, the the BJP government has since um, tried to dilute it. It received pushback and had to step back. And then now it's trying to basically undercut, um, you know, law that tried to at least moderately raise compensation across the country. And so uh, what I try to argue is that this kind of underlying, you know, until, India's growth model becomes more uh, inclusive, you're not going to see these kinds of land wars um, go away. And even attempts to kind of buy off farmers um, are unlikely to really succeed um, in uh, in undermining um, these land struggles.
0: Yes, the chapter where you outline the know, the differential participation of the elites and then the semi-proletarianized and then, you know, the absolutely proletarianized and how they're all participating in the real estate speculation bubble. I mean, that just read like a Bollywood film script. It was uh, crazy. I mean, especially how some of the figures that you were describing were six-figure dollar sums. And I mean, of course, that kind of financial speculation over a decade is going to socially transform a uh, landscape indelibly. And I guess what you know, I kept thinking about because I do work on a well, not exactly similar, but you know, an anti-dispossession uh, struggle, but you know, a, a very different social landscape and you know in Rajpura we see that what comes up you know in their neighborhood is uh, an elite enclave with a knowledge economy where they just realistically cannot participate in a sustainable way and that certainly does not you know compare to the kind of um, support that they you know could glean from their livestock their Means of production. And so, and in my case, you know, the interlocutors are far less capable of ever participating in development of this nature. And so I wanted to ask you if, you know, some of your neo rentier protagonists who did come off ahead in some sense. I mean, how are they thinking of future generations participating in this quote-unquote development trajectory? Because I think in the conclusion, which, you know, you end in a very somber note, you know, you pretty much say that the only thing that would make farmers quiescent is rising land prices, because we certainly don't see anytime soon a change in India's economic model and people aren't overnight going to be able to participate in, you know, BPO industries. So what is the the game plan for people who are doing somewhat okay in that they have the social capital to have come off better than others. But again, as you point out, it's relative, not absolute. Um, how are they thinking of the future?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I should start by saying that, you know, in addition to criticizing modernization theorists um, and certain variants of stagist Marxism, my third target was really those who kind of romanticize villages. Right. As being Mm -hmm. these kind of harmonious peasants, um, commoners and so
0: egalitarian. Right.
1: Yeah. You know, and and if you have just any passing knowledge of (laughs) uh, the agrarian structure across most of South Asia, you realize that's kind of ridiculous. Um, But, you know, you have steep inequalities everywhere. They do vary a lot you know, um, across regions and even across villages in regions. Um, now the region I studied specifically is obviously very different from, uh, you know, where you studied in, or- in Orissa. And, um, this is very much a kind of plains peasant milieu. Um, and it's in Rajasthan, uh, where you had a princely state, um, uh, until India's independence where you, had, you know, an agrarian structure that, you know, it's not much of a stretch to call it feudal. You had, uh, lords, uh, the Rajput, uh, that controlled all of the land and owned the villages and extracted corvee labor and so on. Um, and underneath them, you had, uh, relatively well-off fractions of Brahmins and Jats, uh, who came out of the land reform process, um, in the fifties with most of the land. Um, and so, you know, what uh, the village I studied was still very much these historic inequalities were still very much, you know, present in the kind of structuring principle um, of, 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 of village life. You had, a, you know, absentee uh, landlord Rajput family that controlled a huge amount of land that was, you know, uh, something like, uh, you know, 100 times the size of the average land holding in the village. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the scion of that, um, family had been educated at elite schools, was a, you know, investment banker at Citigroup, um, in Mumbai. And, you know, I was just blown away, but I mean, I, you know, uh, the story and had come back to, uh, to Rajpur to be the village headman, which is a very anomalous trajectory, but it made good village, uh, sorry, it made good business sense. He could make a lot more money off his real estate in that village than as an investment banker right? Because the land had just become so, so uh, uh, valuable. Um, After the SEZ land boom, it increased by a factor of 50. And this guy was sitting on a huge amount. And then you had all these Jats and Brahmins that, you know, had, um, say, 100, uh, you know, bigas of land. So that would be something like, you know, um, 25 hectares. Um, And, uh, you know, that they were, pretty well off when it was, you know, basically livestock, single, you know, rain fed agricultural economy. Um, and they had all diversified into, uh, you know, small businesses and, you know, uh, jobs in the city and so on. Many of them uh, had kids doing that, or they had done that. Uh, and, you know, were milk middlemen and so on. Um, and so what I showed that, you know, that group really did well, um, you know, They became brokers. They did well selling their land. And they made yeah, like some of the millions of dollars. I mean, dollar millionaires. Um, it was shocking. Uh, and um, a lot of them were reinvesting. So the future for them is not in work, really. I mean, their kids were all also complaining about you know the fact that they also couldn't get jobs um, in the SEZ. They're still... You know, not much work to be had. And even though many of them had BAs from, uh, you know, institutions around Jaipur, um, those were not sufficient even to get work in the, you know, Infosys and Deutsche Bank and the big, you know, IT companies. Um, so they all complained about that, but they, you know, so their investment strategies were land, you know, more land, um, mostly for real estate purposes. They might be an absentee landlord for sharecroppers, you um, in the interim but they were buying land you know near highways or near you know outside of cities and towns where it would appreciate um they were going buying businesses they were buying water pumps they were um you know uh small shops and things like that so almost entirely in the sphere of circul- circulation and rent nothing really uh productive um so that's you know that's where they were going and you know educating their kids and trying to get uh jobs so that's that's one thing that i think um, was also a challenge for them.
0: Yes, I think the only productive investment you noted from capital gains was a brick kiln factory, right?
1: Yeah. Which, yeah.
0: yes, employed people, correct?
1: Right. And obviously a very old industry that, um, you know, is not very technologically um, involved and, and is built on brutal labor exploitation, Um so for the most part, that was only one case. For the most part, it was all real estate speculation and and good old fashioned money lending, right? So actually, the number of money lenders had just expanded, and so in all these ways, you know, these pre these really old inequalities were kind of being refashioned, reproduced in a kind of slightly different way. Um, so the upper caste elite was now being brokers, ripping off uh, you know poor farmers as they were selling their land. Some of them were labor contractors, so skimming off of uh, any work that they could get, um, they were the shop owners, so um, catering to the newly commercialized needs of of uh, dispossessed farmers, um, and they were uh, lending them money at you know um, steep interest rates. Um, so these kinds of village inequalities were you know, refashioned, certainly um, not undermined. Uh, and so, really, the book is just trying to go beyond this either modernization or romanticism kind of binary and, and show the collision between, you know, a pretty exclusionary trajectory of capitalism that doesn't look like, you know, industrial capitalism, um, and, uh, these really steep rural inequalities, um, and to show what happens when those things come together, which, you know, doesn't match with the histories of the West, right? Around which Marx talked about in the in primitive accumulation, and uh, we don't know exactly where it's, where it's going. Um, uh, and so, to try to you know, I think it's it's a it's, it's a Marxian analysis, but one that's not uh, tries to avoid any linear or stagist, um you know, assumptions.
0: You went back to Rajpura after your. Fieldwork stint what do you see in terms of you know people's sort of continuing interactions with the SSE, but also their personal livelihood crests and troughs
1: yeah I, you know I did the first um, round of fieldwork in between two thousand nine and two thousand and eleven and then I subsequently visited every you know, one to two years, um, up until this past, uh, uh, summer of 2017. Uh, and, you know, watching the trajectories of these different farmers from different, you know, social positions kind of go up and down and seeing the, the real estate boom cool off, go back up and go down again, um, uh, and kind of tracking, you know, uh, people's lives through these kinds of, um, you know, these vicissitudes of of global capitalism. I mean, now the, you know, the these individual lives of um, farmers are really enmeshed now with, um, you know, what the convulsions of global finance capital, right? So. Um,
0: yes, I think at one point you said before it was rain and now it's land prices. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that.
1: And to be more accurate, it was always rain and crop prices. <laughs> but now it's, land prices itself irrespective of what crops you're producing um and so you know I, when i the second to last time when i went back and it seemed like the land boom had come back and so i almost was wondering if i, I needed a more optimistic conclusion for at least some of the people that still had land you know and then um and then by the last then the, my last trip it had crashed again and the big thing was that the, the sd developer had closed off the road uh, between the village and the SEZ. Um, <clears throat> those who'd come out with a little bit of money, um, you know, I, either the near-rentiers or the kind of middle ground I call petty asset managers, were really dependent on having a small shop or a vegetable stand or something in the in the village market. Um, and what kept that market uh, going was the traffic um, going through the village en route to the SEZ. And um, the plans for the SEZ, though, always called for closing that, that road, though, it it seemed very abstract to most people that finally happened um, last year to really devastating effect on, on the village. So, you know, the people who had been fully proletarianized and lost everything and came out with nothing, it didn't make a difference, uh, except that they had to bike longer an extra number of kilometers to get to Jaipur for work now. Um, But those who came out with some kind of small business or asset in the village, um, saw that really depreciate fast, um, and dramatically. So it was a pretty somber kind of note to, to end my, um, field work on.
0: Yes. And are you working on anything new related to this project or is it something completely different?
1: i am going in two directions. Um, one is I'm interested in, um, you know, I felt like I needed to do an in-depth village case study to understand this process. And, and now I want to think about it in a comparative context and to understand, you know, <clears throat> would a similar project in a different agrarian milieu come out differently. Um, why do farmers protest in some places, not others? When they do, why it's the you know they're the in some cases they're just want compensation. In some cases, um, like in the uh, area that you studied, you know they're they're not even willing to bargain over compensation. Um, What happens to caste and gender inequalities, right? When people are dispossessed, Um, so I'm trying to think about a number of comparisons um, that uh, can help you know illustrate. I think the the huge amount that we can kind of gain from a more comparative sociology of dispossession um, instead of just all focusing on our case studies and describing what happened there. um, Why does it look different in different places and even uh, cross country? Um, So I'm just held a conference with a colleague comparing land dispossession in India and China. um, And I'm working on, uh, you know, a paper on how um, the consequences for caste inequality are different. Um, you know, in, in, in different villages um, with a a graduate student um, at Hopkins to study a different SEZ. So that's one kind of direction I'm I'm going in. And the other is um, an ethnography of uh, land mafias, uh, which is, you know, would take a bit to explain, but these are groups that are neither exactly, um, they're grabbing land, but they're not, doing it through the state's formal processes of eminent domain. Uh, and they're also not exactly just regular real estate brokers or investors, um, but these are kind of uh, informal coalitions of elite investors, government officials, politicians, um, you know, guys with muscle power and village brokers and police and so on that – they use a lot of strategies to force people off their land cheaply. Um, so I've, I have kind of came across this phenomenon during the field work uh, for this project, but wasn't able to really fully uh, explore it in depth. So that's uh, my next ethnographic uh, project. And I'm knee-deep in the comparative mafia literature at the moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that actually sounds yeah, very. Um, I was going to say titillating, but that's probably not the right word. I just finished watching the um, entire Sopranos.
1: Oh, uh, yes, I'm on the last season.
0: Oh, okay, no spoilers. It it gets <laughs> it gets even darker than you think it is.
1: Yeah, already. Yeah, I mean, the fun part of that this project is I, I get to watch a lot of Bollywood films on on mafias and most because i think these actually groups aren't mafias in the classical sense i think they're not protection rackets i think they're not they don't have a boss they don't have you know body tattoos or something like that to denote membership um these are guys like the people who uh, you know i i talked about at the beginning that made my you know entree into the village um real estate guys who probably some days do above board deals And then other days do things like, well, you know, I know that this guy's in a fight with his brother. Let me buy out his brother's interest and pressure him to sell. And if he refuses, I bought off the police because I have a politician in my pocket and maybe I have some guys I can call to come by and intimidate him, you know, um, things like that. Or, you know, let me encroach on, you know, the land next to mine, or let me, um, uh, you know, sell the same plot in my housing development to three people things like that. Um, But I I don't think they have, uh, you know, Tony Sopranos. Um, So I think there it's, it's a different thing. So I don't know if, if they are mafia, um, but I think in kind of exploring that phenomenon, it's going to get me into something interesting territory about um, capitalism and criminality uh, in contemporary India. And it's an alternative resolution to the problem Uh, that I leave at the end of this book, right, which is that if uh, there's so much, you know, farmer opposition to government land dispossession, is this a kind of alternative resolution uh, for capital of the land question, you know, as for big companies to rely on these kinds of land aggregators using shady methods to... uh, To get the land for them.
0: Well, we at New Books Network wish you all the best for your future project. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so
1: much. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Bye-bye.